And God, that's our prayer that we would see you for who you are, holy, set apart, and that you love us. Jesus, that you would be our vision. Lord, as we talk today about growing up and following you a little bit further, a little bit longer on the path, God, I pray that you would help us to remember that it's only because of you and it's only because of the cross that's before us that that we can follow you. Jesus, it's only by the cross that's provided us forgiveness and a way to follow you. And so, God, I pray that today as we talk about growing and moving, Lord, you'd, you'd help us to, to be honest with ourselves about where we're at and maybe where we need to move a little bit. God, I pray that this would be a, a sanctuary of um, peace. Lord, that your peace would be upon us. Lord, that we would not heap up extra guilt. Lord, that we would not heap up extra condemnation. But Jesus, that we would, as children who are, who are in love with you and, and know that you love us, Lord, help us to work on these things in our lives. So I pray that your word would go forth clearly and that uh, we would all be moved by it. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat. And this is the honker. That's key. And there is the wheel to drive the car. This is where you put your foot to get it moving. You mean the pedal? Yes. What does this one do? That one opens the top. Watch. See, it opens the top. I can see the sky. No, that's mostly out. What do you do if it rains? The phone? If it rains and you What rains? What rains? If, if it rains, what rains? I said rains. Rain, then we would close the windows. And what would you do if it was sunny after it rained? We could open the windows. But would the coal be dirty? What? Would the coal be dirty? What? No. How do you turn on the car? You have to push a button on the car, but I don't know which button. I don't remember what it looks like. You don't? Then how do you turn it on when you don't remember what it looks like? Um. Did you lock the car? Yep. Yeah, So, for those of you who have no idea what we're talking about, we are in the middle of a series called Growing Up, and today's talk is, is called All Growed Up, <laughs> because, uh, see, honestly, as a man-guy kid, I, I have to admit that I feel a little bit of inferiority when I stand in front of 
largely my elders and tell them, you know, we need to grow up. <laughs> so uh, it's from my perspective, you know, we need to be all grown up. And so uh, I, as long as you know that I know that you know that. So that's good. Um, but we're talking about what happens after we, you know, we first meet Jesus and we experience his grace and we experience his forgiveness and, and we're met as sinners and, we, and it's just on our heart and, and we realize how like little we are and how big God is for the first time. And, and I don't know if you guys can remember that moment. I can remember the moment when I really started following Jesus and I was just like, man, this is going to be fun. Like, this is going to be crazy. This is going to be scary. Uh, but I know it's going to be fun. And so, what do you do like the day after that? You know, when like the emotional high is gone, and like the feeling of, woo, wow, I'm loved by God, and he, he, he died for me, and this is great. You know, what do you do after that? How do you, how do you grow closer to Jesus? Because Jesus oftentimes will say, hey, follow me. But we oftentimes don't know where Jesus is going, right? And, you know, as I was thinking about this whole concept of maturity, the best way for me to, to talk about it is to start from, you know, my own life, because I'm the only one that's ever lived it. And one of the first times I ever experienced this reality of, of, of realizing that I need to be more grown up was when I was visiting my grandmother, my great-grandmother, actually, with my dad. Now, when I was a kid, I was like five four or five years old, I, I, I wanted everyone to like me, and I was also a pretty sharp kid, and I realized that adults always liked other adults, right? You, you never see an adult look to another adult and say, go play, you're bothering me, you know? Hopefully you don't use that language with your kids, but you know what I mean. you like, go in the other room and play with your Xbox, or go in the other room and play with your Legos. I'm going to pull my hair out if you don't. Adults don't say that to each other. And, and so I, I, I picked up on this as a kid. So I thought, hmm, if I act like an adult, then maybe the adults will accept me as one of their own. And so I would, I would go around and use like words that I didn't understand and made up words altogether, which really wasn't a great strategy to like ingratiate myself with the elder people because they're like, this kid is weird. Like he's not only five, he's also strange. Like he's speaking weird languages. And I was just like trying, like mashing words together. Um, but the, I, I would do this thing regularly. And the first time I remember it happening was at my grandma's. And we, we went there, like I said, with my dad. And her house, she lived alone. She had, her husband had died probably 15, 20 years prior to this visit. I mean, she was in her mid-80s and she lived alone, and she had no toys. Zero toys. Like, even with a five-year-old that's got a pretty good imagination, you can, like, turn things into toys. She didn't really have that stuff, because all the stuff that she had, we couldn't touch. And so, basically, it was just me and my dad, and we went, and after about five minutes, I was bored out of my mind. I don't know if you've ever seen a kid with this dance this is them telling you, I'm bored. I hate my life right now because I'm not doing anything fun. And that's me after about five minutes. Because really, the only thing my great-grandmother had to offer me was a candy jar, and she was smart, and she put it way too high for me to reach. I tried, even with a stepladder. And so, like, <laughs> she's a wily gal. Uh, I went there, and so after like five minutes, I was bored out of my mind. So I'm just like flopped 
on the sofa next to my dad as he's talking to her in the chair and they're having a wonderful conversation. I mean, really, from this perspective, you know, being 30 now, I can see my dad talking to his grandmother about small things, about family, about growing up and all that stuff. And it was actually a really tender moment. Like, it's a really beautiful moment. If you've ever had one of those moments with an elder, like, it's just like, we are family and we've been family for a long time and we love each other and this is great. But to a five-year-old kid, it was miserable. I was just thinking, shut up. Please stop talking. Because I want to go home. As soon as you finish talking, I can go home and play with my toys. And they are fun. And so I don't know if you remember when you were a young child, but when your world was not well, the entire world was not well. And when your world was well, then the entire world was fine. It didn't matter what was happening outside your world because you're just a kid. And it's just like, well, I'm interested in what I'm interested in and nothing else. And so I was really, really selfish. And I was also observant. Because, see, we had visited my grandmother before. And we, I, we had been miserable before. And I almost died of boredom before, I thought. And so I had watched this thing that my dad does right before we leave. He'll sit there... He'll finish his cup of coffee. He'll set it on the little end table. He'll slap his legs. He'll sigh and he'll say, Well, Granny, stand up real slow. Kind of stretch out a little bit. It's time to leave. We got to hit the road. It's a long road today, so we got to go. And she'd say, Oh, I know. It's okay. Take some cookies. And then we could go. And it was wonderful. So I thought, Well, it's been about seven minutes into this conversation. That's probably long enough. So, five-year-old Adam. <laughs> yeah. I sigh. Kind of put my hands on my legs and stand up like a 35-year-old man would. Just, ugh, man, my back is sore. Granny, you know, it's just about time we get going. It's been great visiting with you. We'll see you soon, but we gotta go. Sorry. And I'll never forget the look on my grandmother's face. And then I looked back at my father, who was still sitting, as he said, Sit down. I was in this moment where, where, you know, I was just this kid and I was wanting to already be grown up. I was already wanting to be like down the road to the point where other adults would look at me and respect me. And it was this, this frustrating thing that actually continued on in my life and continues on today. Because I live in the future. I, I, I look at my life and I realize, you know, Adam, you're kind of a man guy kid and you need to grow up a little bit, but maybe you'll grow up when you do this thing. So when I was in junior high, it was like, okay, I'm going to get in high school and I'm going to be one of those older kids and I'm going to drive a car and I'm not going to smoke because that's bad, but I could if I wanted, but I won't. And like uh, when I was in high school, I said, okay, I'm going to grow up when I get to college. I'm going to be on my own. I'm going to drive a car. Apparently that's always the measure of maturity. Um... I'm going to own a car, uh, and I'm going to, like, do great. And then even when I was in college, like, I'd be sitting there playing video games and thinking, man, you know, I've got graduate school. I can still grow up. And, you know, even graduate school, I would think, you know, once I get a career, that's when I'll be an adult, right? How many of you feel like kids trapped in adults' bodies? 
Like, it does happen, right? Where it's like, you turn around and holy cow, you're 30. Or you turn around and holy cow, you're 40 or 50. Like, where did all that time go? See, the thing is, time is constant for all of us. And I, I think that desire for maturity, that desire to grow up a little bit, the desire to move on down the road a little bit in life is in all of us. Whatever stage of life we're in. You know, uh, in the first service, I talk about careers and relationships, you know, how we want to, like, maybe grow into our career. We want to we be the best employee that we can be. We want to be the best boss we can be. We want to be the best small business owner that we can be. We want to kind of take steps forward to that. So we, like, read books and try practices and try to move forward. And then we look back and we think, oh, wow, I didn't know anything then. You know, maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you're just thinking, I just wish I could take the next step in my job. I wish I could take the next step in, in what I do for a living. But maybe not. Maybe for you, there is relationships. And you, you have just suddenly realized, or you've realized a long time ago, and you're still in trajectory, that, that you are not the person that you want to be in relation to your friends and maybe to your spouse, to your girlfriend, to your boyfriend. Like, specifically, since I'm married, uh, it's basically a microcosm of insecurity. Like, you realize how bad you are at a lot of things. And, like, when I got married, I realized how immature I was. And it made, an, made a desire in me to be the man that Jenny deserved. That's my wife, Jenny. Uh, to be the man that she deserved. To be the man that she needed me to be in our relationship. And, and that, that desire seems to always be just a little bit further along the road. It just needs, seems to be a little bit further out. And maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you aren't the person you want to be for your friends. Maybe you, are the per, you aren't the person that you want to be for your spouse. Maybe you aren't the person that you want to be for your kids. Like, they're looking to you for guidance and support, and you're like, hey, I don't know. That happens sometimes. I want to encourage you that we all kind of want to move forward. Maybe for you, you're on the second half of life. You have done a lot of stuff. You have accomplished many, many things. And you wonder, what's next? Is there a next? Is there something more for me? Well, I want to encourage you that, at least from my reading of Scripture, and hopefully we'll kind of illuminate some of those passages today, that God always seems to call us just a little bit further on just a little bit further along the road, just a little bit closer to him. And so hopefully today, I, I, I don't want you to hear me telling you, shame on you, you're such a bad person. Today, as someone who is struggling with this stuff, I'm going to invite you to struggle with it with me. Like, let's open our hearts, do a little open heart surgery, and look at our lives and say, where are we in this? Where are we lined up according to truth? How are we measuring up against this? Because really, I think God is calling all of us to maybe just a little bit forward. And so, would you join me please um, in Hebrews chapter 5. This first part's not going to be on the screen. We have uh, 6, 1 through 3 that's going to be on the screen. But uh, this is one of my favorite passages um, in Scripture. It's oft misunderstood. It's oft uh, misquoted. Um, People have used it to hurt people, uh, this section, and I want to encourage you that I'm not going to do that today. Uh, hopefully, I'm just going to illuminate some truths that are going to help us. Um, see, the interesting thing about the book of Hebrews is that no one knows who wrote it. Did you know that? Uh, there are some really good guesses, 
but no one knows for sure who wrote it. It's actually one of the only books of the Bible that has that quality about it. But it was so well accepted by the early church. Its apostolicity was so well accepted. They thought, oh, this is definitely a word from God, that they included it in their corpus and they passed it along to us. So we can trust and know that Hebrews is inspired by God, even if we don't know the name of the person that wrote the letters down. But it was also written to a group of people that um, are probably a little bit different than us. See, their background was they grew up in Judaism, which was basically uh, one of the ancient cultures. Uh, We read about it in the Old Testament. They read about it in the Old Testament. Uh, The Jews followed God through thick and thin, and they didn't follow God through thick and thin. Like, we know their story pretty well, and they knew their story pretty well. So the book of Hebrews is littered with references to the Old Testament. It's, It's constantly, and throughout that whole book, brought up. And so the point... I'm going to summarize, sorry, it's 30,000 feet, of Hebrews is that through obedience to truth, we can inherit reward, we can inherit rest. The author of Hebrews compares it to the promised land. He says, in the same way that they were faithful and they followed, they inherited the promised land. If we are faithful, if we are obedient, we will enter into our own rest. We will enter into our own promised land. So he's going through these teachings, and he stops. Like, there's this moment. Here, gee, um, he stops and he says, <clears throat> We have much to say about this. Jesus, specifically. But it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. He probably wrote that one verse to me, specifically. Um, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. How many of you have ever heard of that juxtaposition of words, milk and food, milk and solid food, or sometimes milk and meat? We, we talk about that in church. We, we say, uh, if a church is good and we're, if someone asks about us we, about it, they'll, we'll say, well, you know, I'm, really, I'm just really well fed there. Like, they just really dive deep into the word, and I feel like it's got a lot of good content and the, the, the preacher is actually good and it's awesome. Or, you know, when we leave a church because it's, we didn't agree with something or something, a lot of times we'll say, oh, I just wasn't really well fed there. I just, I just wasn't really, I just wasn't feeling it. We, we kind of use that. It, they, they would say, you know, maybe it was just kind of like shallow, just kind of like milk. And I was looking for more like meat and potatoes, Christianity, solid food. And so they went to a different church because of that. I've done that. I've said both those things. And I have close friends that have done that and said both those things in that context. And hopefully um, you'll see here, and if you don't see it here, uh, please do a study in this section. The difference is not between simple things and complex things. The milk is not elementary things, and then the, the meat is actually like more grown-up things like let's talk about Arminianism or uh, let's talk about amillennialism or covenant theology. You know, it's not that. Not by a long shot, actually. And he explains. Um, He says, anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature. Uh, This word here is going to come up a lot of times and sometimes it'll read perfect, sometimes it'll read mature, it's the exact same word. Um, But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. 
I have spent more years than I should have, probably. I crammed a four-year degree into five uh, in undergrad um, in Christian education, in specifically biblical studies. Spent a lot of time in languages, spent a lot of time in scripture, spent a lot of time in the apparatus around scripture. Years, just nearly a decade. And I've been teaching it for a long time and I fell into this trap about halfway through my educational path to nearing the end of it, and I didn't realize it, that I thought, knowledge, that's where it's at. I think I'm going to get a little bit closer to Jesus. I think I'm going to be more mature as a Christian. I think I'm going to grow a little bit more if I could just know a little bit more. Like, if I could tell you the four points of Hosea and what that's about, then maybe I can be a little bit more like Christ. And maybe I can be a little bit more mature of a Christian. And so, like, when people come and ask for help, I can tell them, well, clearly in this book you can see that in the second point of Hosea, because I know this, that you should do this. And I, I, I felt this. And I fell into this trap that knowledge equals maturity. And I want to encourage you and maybe edify you to say that knowledge is necessary but it is by no means sufficient for maturity. Our rank with Jesus, one, why are we saying rank? Our relationship with Jesus is not dependent on the amount of stuff we know. Like it's not, I guess it's not dependent only on the amount of stuff we know. You know, you have to know the truth to do it. So knowledge is necessary. But a lot of times we fall into this trap of thinking that that's the truth. See, the thing is, um, this note thing that you're writing down, I love that we have notes because it helps me focus because my brain is all over the place. But at the end of the day, if the only thing you get out of a sermon is what you've written down and it never bleeds into your life and it never bleeds into action, you just know more, you might as well throw it away. Like, there's no value in it. Knowledge unapplied. Um... There's a verse in 1 Corinthians 8.1 where the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of people uh, that are going through a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. And he's talking about food sacrifice to idols and he says, you know, this is a big division and some of you know better than others and we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He says that, that knowledge is this thing that fills you, and it's, it's like a bellows. You know, if you've ever seen an old furnace with a bellows, it's like you just stick the hose in your belly button, and you just... <laughs> medically, that's a bad choice, right, Bonnie? Don't do that. Um, but, you know, you just, you, you just kind of inflate, and you become like the Michelin man of knowledge. And that's what I was. By the time I exited seminary, I was a worse disciple of Christ than I, when I went into Bible college. But I knew all this stuff. And like, I, I could tell you all the books of the Bible in order, and I could tell you probably a summary of each one. And, but at the same time, like my life, I was just totally not following Jesus in a lot of areas. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The juxtaposition is that love is the structure that stands. It stands outside of you, and it holds you up, and it's something that you can lean on but it's so much harder because it's a verb, right? Love is a verb. You got to do stuff. It's tough. 
Um, you know, as I was, I was thinking about um, this trap of knowledge, um, I was telling Jenny about it, and she's like, oh, there's this video. I just shared it on Facebook. You should totally watch it. So we're going to do that. Could you please play this video? This is about what kind of the, the knowledge culture that sometimes pervades our church. What's the deal? What? I told you three days ago to clean your room. I know. Well, I'm glad you know. It's a mess. I memorized what you said. What do you mean you memorized what I said? Every word. Wait, you memorized that I told you to clean your room? Yes. And I learned how to say it in Spanish and in Hebrew. And if you want to know how to say it in Spanish, it's Yo Limpio El Dormitorio. That's, that's what, that's Spanish. 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 Okay. And I um, read a book. It's called Five Ways to Clean Your Room. It just really helped me to understand, like, what you said. And it was really life-changing. It was awesome. And I had friends from my small group over. It was so good. We talked about, like, the importance of a clean room and, like, what it's like to have a clean room and, like, how you should have a clean room. It was so so good. It was absolutely incredible. And Susie came over, you remember? Yeah. She came over and we like mapped it out on a sheet of paper on what my room would have been like if I, when I did clean it. And it looked really good. Like it, everything was really precise. Uh, okay, well, um, keep up the, <laughs> keep up the good work. Thanks. I love you. Keep holding me accountable. Yeah. And how many of us... I mean, this is a great verse right here. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Love is a verb. When we want to follow Jesus, um, we can't just read books about it. We can't just know points about it. We can't just uh, meditate on it. There t- comes a point of action. And I, I know, again, like I said, I feel really silly standing in front of my elders saying, we've got to grow up in Christ. But I think in the last 30 years, I figured out that this isn't really linked to age. Because the truth is that time passes for all of us. And some of us um, grow a little bit more than others, and some of us don't grow at all. And, you know... We can't just sit on top of knowledge and say, yeah, we've achieved. I know this now, and so I know better. Like um, the the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans in chapter 7, he actually says that when I found out that the law existed, when I learned more, I learned how low I was. I learned how deficient I was. And, And so we can't just rest on our knowledge. And so the next logical conclusion for me, and one that I've seen in, in the church and one I've seen in my own life, is uh, personal righteousness. It's another thing that is it's necessary, 
Like, you cannot uh, love someone and, and be a beacon for someone if inside you are just a, a shambles and you are not following Jesus and you do not love God and you are not striving to follow him. It doesn't matter how uh, pious you sound. Uh, it, we need to trust in him beyond our own righteousness. It doesn't matter how righteous you sound on the outside if what's on the inside is corrupt and gone. So we do need to have that personal righteousness. We do need to have that inside of us where that, that recognition of who Jesus is and, and, and that he loves us and that we, we strive to do good. We strive to follow him. We strive to live the life that he died for. You know, we, we push for that. But I think a lot of times, because it's simpler, we stop there. Because it only involves us and our own world and things that we can control, we make that the point of following Christ. We make the point of, you know, I've been saved by grace, but now I'm going to take care of this on my own. I'm going to start being good on my own. And hopefully at the point where, you know, Jesus, you didn't have to die for me. I'm, I'm pretty good. We, we fall into that trap either explicitly or implicitly, but it happens. I have. And I, I want to share with you a, a word from Micah, chapter 6. If you could actually turn there with me. I have a confession to make that as a like late millennial or early millennial, a lot of my Bible reading comes through screens and devices. And so finding things uh, in like an actual book Bible is a little bit more difficult. Doop, 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 doop. Micah chapter 6. Well, I'm cheating. What? That's the page number? And this one? <laughs> You're my new favorite person. Yeah, that's the right one. 9.23. So, God is writing to his people and there's this conversation between the prophet and God and the people and he's speculating about the reality of God and he, he catches this window into God's heart that I, I think David has found and I think the New Testament authors have really blown wide open. Um, in verse 6, Micah says, of chapter 6. With what, shall I with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? That's a lot of oil. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? See, at the, this point in time, uh, the people of Israel living under something called the sacrificial system, which is basically, as soon as you did something wrong, you went to the temple and you killed something or you burned something up of value to you to kind of pay for it, like to pay God back for the, the mistake you made. And so they had all sorts of systems. They had oil that you would offer, uh, incense, they had grain, um, animals, birds, all sorts of things that they would take to the temple. And you could even buy them at the temple, which was kind of against the point, and that's probably why Jesus got so mad. But 
they would go and they would sacrifice these things and that was how they exercised their own personal righteousness. Like it wasn't just about following the law, it was about following the law, but the, the, the sacrifices became a huge part of that. And, and they kind of wore that proudly, right? And in fact, the sacrificial system gave birth, I think, to a, a class of uh, students known as the Pharisees who Jesus rallied against all the time. But really, these were good people. Like they followed law, they followed the law outside of the law that they made up so they would never fall out of the law. Like, they were very, on the outside, very righteous. And maybe they felt on the inside like they were being righteous. And their mindset might be the same as this person who says, you know, should I bring my calves? Should I bring my grain? Should I bring 10,000 rivers of oil? What should I bring you? And the prophet says, he has shown you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. See, there's really no easy way. In fact, I would say it's impossible. Like, if you were the only person on earth to act justly, why would you need justice if you're the only person? Why would you need mercy if you're the only person? It's impossible to have justice without people. It's impossible to have mercy without relationship. And and that's what he's saying. He's saying that we are required by God to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Righteousness is important. It's a necessary component, but it is not sufficient for what we do. So the greatest commandment that Jesus offered us, and he offered us in a lot of different ways, can be summed up quickly like this. That we need to love God We need to love our neighbors. And he even defined that. He said it's the worst people because, you know, the Pharisees love people they like and that are nice to them. He says it's the worst people. It's your brother. It's the person right next to you. It's everyone. We are to love God and love others. That's the chief command that God gave us. And in fact, that verse uh, where he says that if anyone who keeps my commands will obey, they, they are the ones that love me. That was the last command that he had given, was to love each other. And so the working theory that I have for what maturity is, is just obedience to that command over time. Because the time, it does move for all of us. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing the song. Uh, I did that first service. You know, time keeps on ticking, ticking, ticking. I just sang it a little bit. Sorry, I lied. I'm going to repent from that. Uh, So time moves for all of us, doesn't it? And we all know people that maybe are are older than us and and are way down life, way down the end of life, and they are still selfish like a child. You know, they are, their whole world is consumed by what they want. Their whole world uh, revolves around them. And it's like talking to a child in, a, in an older person's body. But then we also, conversely, we've met lots of young people, haven't we, who have gone through a lot of stuff with Jesus and have, have walked with him in obedience, have, have followed him when, when he was the only light that they could see and, and, and have discovered a level of maturity that, often humbles me. When I run into people that are younger than me, which is getting that set of people is more and more every day, um, it's 
it's humbling to meet someone who is younger than you, but is so much more spiritually mature, so much more faith, so much more trust in Jesus. And I think a lot of that has to do with obedience over time. Time moves for all of us, but not all of us use that time in obedience. And that, that's a hard word to say. And I'll remind you that I'm probably more convicted about this talk than you are, to be honest. Because I am a man-guy kid, and more than just I play video games. Like, I'm spiritually selfish. But Christ calls me forward. Christ calls you forward. Christ calls us all forward. And so, uh, I've got a couple verses that I would like to, to suggest for a couple topics. Um, this is in no way comprehensive on what maturity actually looks like. But these are some exercises, these are some areas of our life that we can apply this principle of obedience to our life and discover a little bit more Christ-likeness, a little bit closer to him, uh, maybe grow up a little bit more. And these are all pretty hard for me to, to do, but all the more necessary. So the first one is that maturity equals obedience times time in our thoughts. That we can actually be obedient to God in the way that we think. Um, there's a, a duo of people that wrote a book a while back, um, Larry Crabb and Don Allender, and they basically posited this theory that our thinking leads our feeling, leads our action. And for me, that's really, really scary because my brain, it's like there's no shielding for thoughts. It's just like random thoughts just come in, and it's just in my head now. And there's like a bunch of them. And I never really know how to sort through it all. And it feels sometimes distracting, and sometimes like you, you think things that make you feel guilty. It's like, man, I'm a terrible person for thinking that. And then it's worse when you have that thinking, and then some feelings go along with that, and you take action. And it's just bad. But, but in Second Corinthians... There's this very powerful verse that God is using in my life right now. Um, and it's the Apostle Paul, and he's giving a defense to the same people that he, he talked about knowledge, how it puffs you up, but love builds you up. He writes them a letter later on. And this is the letter, and he says that um, in verse 4, he says, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So he uses that word again. He says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. God declares something to be true. And he says that his mission, the thing that him and his crew are doing, is that everything that is against what God says is true, he tears that down. He says, That's not true. What an incredibly brave thing that would be for us to do today in a postmodern world where your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth, but let's all hug and be friends. You know, maybe sit around a fire and sing Kumbaya. There is truth that God has revealed about the world. There is truth that God has revealed about you and about me. And Paul says his mission is to tear down every pretension, every idea that stands against the truth of God. And then he uses this phrase, that is probably familiar to most of us. It says, and we take captive every thought. I mean, how many of you have heard a Bible study or a sermon about the idea of taking captive thoughts? And usually, if it's like the ones I've heard, it takes the form of, like, buckle down, get in charge of your thoughts, like, think well, 
you know, Tell Yourself What to Think. That's a book. It's a good book. Um, we've heard all this stuff. And for me, that's just not really, really helpful because I'm not that good at controlling my thoughts. I'm not strong enough to catch all of them that are just flying through here. And maybe you're the same way. But what he says is he says, there is a line to hold your thoughts to. There is a line to say, nope, you're not going past this point because this is truth. And that line is Jesus himself. He says, to make it obedient to Christ. We don't just take captive thoughts because you know, we want to be well-ordered. You know, six tips for being a more successful person. We need to take our thoughts captive by Christ himself by the love that he displayed, by the truth that he, he speaks, by the word that he speaks into our heart through his Holy Spirit, our thoughts should be captive to Christ. And let me tell you about uh, a little thing that happened for me that may, might help you. I was in a conversation with a couple friends. And uh, they were talking, and someone said something that was very constructive, not at all unloving, and actually pretty helpful but all I heard was, ouch. They said something that just hurt my feelings. It, it had something to do with something I'm involved in, and I took it so personally. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but when, when you're like thinking a thing that you know isn't true, and you're like, no, that's not true, and you like feel maybe a little schizophrenic because you're like talking to yourself, that's what I was doing as soon as it happened. Because I heard this thing, and I was like, he didn't mean it personal. He didn't mean it personal. Oh, man. And like it was just eating my lunch. And, and, and all these old words that, that had been implanted in my life started coming back to like worthless and, and good for nothing and incapable. And it was just like, oh, man, this is terrible. And I realized at that point that I was just sitting under this one thought that was consuming me, which is nice because it's just one. So I was driving home. And I'm just like wrestling through this. And this verse comes to mind and I think, Jesus, help me to make this obedient to your truth. And, you know, as I promise this is what happened. As soon as I said that, I was listening to um, a good song off of what I think is a great album. It's the Newsboys' worst received album. It was their disco album. <laughs> Can you believe that? Newsboys made a disco album. Um, and it was a song um, called I Surrender All. And the bridge is um, he doesn't love you because of who you are. He only loves us because of who he is. And as soon as I prayed that prayer, that, that Christ would take captive that thought, that I, it would be obedient to him, that bridge comes up. And I had to pull over. I was just like, oh, God, thank you for helping me. And, you know, it was a process, and I worked through it. But in that moment, God's truth reminded me that he died for me, that I was valuable in his sight, that he even at one point calls me a high priest. He calls all of us that who follow him. Redeemed, forgiven. Those were the names that I was starting to claim because I remembered his truth. And beyond that, beyond my own insecurity, beyond my own, I have to be good enough, God reminded me that he's just good. And that I can rest, that he loves, even if what that person had said about me was personal and was true, I was still loved by a cosmic God. I was still loved by the eternal creator. 
And it was just like rest. There's this moment of rest. And so I want to encourage you. If, if you find yourself thinking things about yourself or thinking things about other people, like I don't, I don't know, how many of you ever heard of, or said the phrase to yourself, who do they think they are? <laughs> you never say that in a good tone. <laughs> like who do they think they are? Like you never say that nice. It's always in this accusatory thing. Next time you find yourself thinking that, I want you to ask yourself, who does God think they are? Who does Jesus think they are? We can find that by truth. We can find that by knowing what's right. But we need to take these thoughts captive. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about is our words, our language. Um, you know, for me, I, I, I said the word worthless earlier. That was one of the biggest struggles for me growing up, was just this one word that my parents used as a joke. Like, it, they were not being malicious most of the time. And my sisters got in on it, and it was whatever. And it was like a nickname that I had. When I messed something up, they'd say, ah, it's just worthless. Oh, that sticks with you. If, if anyone has ever had a word spoken about you or to you by someone you love and by someone you trust, and it just sits down in your heart, you know how powerful words can be. And I want to encourage you that we through Christ, I think, have the ability to order our words. We, through Christ, have the ability to rein them in to the obedience of Christ, to the obedience of His truth. Um, I want to look real quick at James chapter 3. This is the half-brother of Jesus. Um, And he's writing in this genre called wisdom literature, which is basically just a bunch of advice. And he says, in James chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Um, That's always scary for me, you know, and it should be. And I think any time you see someone in the pulpit and you feel like maybe they're taking this a little easy, just hand them this and say, can you read James chapter 3, verse 1 for me, please? Thank you. You know, Maybe not. That's kind of passive-aggressive. But... um, It says, For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man. He uses this word perfect again. It's the same word we used in Hebrews. It's it's maturity. It's grown-upness. It's perfection in the sense of, uh, of being able to move beyond this, like to reproduce. Um, he says that if that person is able to control their language... He is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants them to go. Likewise, in the same way that a bit is small and controls a big animal, in the same way that a a rudder is small and it controls a whole ship, he says, likewise, the tongue is a small part of our body but it makes great boasts. Consider what great a forest is set on fire by such a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. And then in um, in verse 9, in verse 8 he says, No one can tame it. 
It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And in verse 9 he says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men, who have been made in his likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can fresh water come out of a salt uh, font? Or salt water, or can both fresh water and salt water come from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Ouch. I have said some terrible things about people, just in passing. A lot of times for a laugh. And he says that no one can tame it, in verse 8. But then he quickly turns around and he says, you do this, you should not do this. If we use our words to tear down the people around us, we use our words unadvisedly, not in line with the truth of Scripture, not in line with the truth of what Christ died for. If we're not acknowledging who they are in our words, we may start fires that go out of control. And so I want to encourage you, um, if this is a struggle for you, it's a struggle for me, to, to make your words line up with what is true. Not with what you're feeling right now. Not with what you, you just, your gut tells you and you just want to burn someone down. Tell yourself the truth and then speak truth. Actual truth, not just what you think. And the truth is that God died for whoever that is. And that God made them in his image. And that God, he, he loves them. We have, to, we have to order our language. Um, and the last thing I want to talk about is relationships, um, which is, I mean, a huge part of this anyway. But in 1 John 2, um, the Apostle John, uh, verse 9 and 10, he says, <clears throat> Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is, is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not where he's going, because the darkness has blinded him. I want to encourage you that if we are to follow Christ in maturity and taking those next steps forward, one of the limits of our growth, one of our limits in our relationship with Jesus, one of the things that is going to make it more difficult is enmity in your relationships. If you, if you have no ability to tell yourself the truth in your relationships and take captive those relationships to obedience to Christ, it, John says you might as well be walking around in darkness. That's hard. That's really hard. And I, I know that some relationships are really difficult, and I know that some relationships are really strained. But if we, as a church, interact with one another and with our extended families and with the community, if we interact with them in a way that Christ would die for us, you know, the, the, the truth that Christ died for, if we interact with each other in a way that honors that, we're going to change our county and we're not even going to try. Um, we're, we're just about out of time, but one thing I do want to say is that if you're going through suffering right now, 
If you're going through a, a situation where your faith is being tested, and, you know, uh, the chair example, you know, where you say, well, do you believe in the chair? Then sit in the chair. And if you do sit in the chair, then you actually believe. Like, if you need a chair, like, if you need God to come through in your life because you are on your last rope, you've tried all your other options, and it's only Jesus, you are in the best place to grow closer to him. You are in the best place to grow closer to him. When you need Jesus, barring no one else, you're in the best place to grow closer to him. Those are those crucible moments in my life where I'm losing my mind and I have no resources left of my own and Christ is calling me forward. That's the the place where I can grow. So if you are looking to fill in the notes, that suffering can be a catalyst. Uh, James, the same author that we read earlier, he actually talks about this, and he says that uh, when you encounter trials, when you have a hard time, you need to consider it as joy and look to God in faith because he is going to make you, and he uses the word perfect, mature. He's going to make you all grown up through this if you respond to him. Now, if you respond and start blaming God and start going through it, then you're just passing time. You're not doing the obedience part. You're not listening to the truth. You're not reigning in your life. You're not making your actions correspond to what you think. You're just passing time. But if you go through suffering, clinging to truth and acting on truth, we can become a little bit closer to Jesus. We can become a little bit more grown up. And I want to encourage you that it is possible. Um, In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 through 20, Jesus is talking about uh, false prophets. And he says, do you mind bringing that up and we can just read it? He says, beware of the false prophets who came to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Does this sound familiar? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, to be completely transparent, he's talking about teachers. People that stand in front of people, telling them things, and hopefully it will help them live their life. Which is a lot of what I'm talking, that's what I'm doing right now. And you should always be able to look at the fruit of our lives and say, do they believe what they're saying? Like, you can tell the difference between a false teacher and a good teacher by whether they're actually wrestling with the material. And at least today I am. And I want to encourage you that this principle applies beyond this, I think. That if we have Christ's truth in us and we're striving to grow closer to him in our thoughts, in, our, in our, the way we talk, in, in our relationships, if we are striving for that, we don't have to work at growing fruit. How many of you have ever heard like an apple tree out in an orchard going, <laughs> That's weird. You'd never, you'd never hear that. Because this is what it does. That's what a good tree does. It just does that. It doesn't strive to do that. It's not trying to produce good works. It's not trying to, to make a thing happen. It's just like, well, I'm a good tree. Oh, fruit. How about that? Here you go. Here's an apple. Uh, Please, I'm, I'm just so glad that apple trees don't actually talk because I would never eat another apple in my life. Um, but I want to tell you that, that 
our maturity can be observed. And in fact, we are encouraged to observe and spur one another on. And I think it's in Romans 12, where he says, spur one another on toward love and good works. Toward love for one another. In James, at the end of chapter 1, he says that pure and undefiled religion is this, that you would uh, take care of orphans, window, widows, and keep yourself unblemished from the world. That, that you, would be, you would have actions that your love would be a verb. And in fact, that is, I think, the measure of it. Because Jesus says that we will be known as his disciples by our love. That's the measuring stick. That's the, the way that we'll know if we are mature. If we know a whole lot and we have no love, we're not there. If we do a lot of good deeds and we don't have love, we're not there. And I don't have to tell anyone in this community that uh, others are watching. If, if people know you go to North Hills, you bring baggage all of a sudden to that conversation. Just like any other church. Any established group of people that sticks around for a while starts to get a reputation. And we are the authors of that, I think. We can set the tone for that. I think that we can be known at North Hills as a loving community that orders our relationships in line with Christ, that orders our language in line with Christ, that orders our thoughts in line with Christ, that we do things like we serve people, we love people. We're already doing that. I want to tell you that we're on a stage as a church, and that's a good thing. Because people will look to us and say, they love each other even when it doesn't make a lot of sense. And they love other people even when it doesn't make a lot of sense. And they, they, they say they believe something, and then they do things that correspond to that saying. I want to encourage you guys, if you feel beat up today, please don't. Please don't. That's not the point of this. The point is, is that wherever we're at, Christ is calling us a little bit further. Maybe your thing isn't in the list. Maybe your thing isn't thought, talk, or relationships. Maybe it's something completely different that no one else shares, that you need to grow in maturity toward. Well, I want to tell you that Christ died for you anyway. Immature children. He died for us. And he loves us. And he's calling us forward because he loves us too much to leave us where we're at. So we're going to sing a song here at the end. And the ushers are going to come forward. And it's actually an opportunity um, for those of us who call North Hills home to financially support what we do because there's a lot of stuff that we support financially. Like we, um, There's the Benevolence Fund where we help people out with groceries and bills. And, and we've got missionaries in a lot of places. Uh, we've got to keep the lights on. We've got to have a little bit of a staff. And, you know, there are...